I was 25 when I got to Vermont. Being a camp counselor wasn't new to me. I had already done it. Even being a counselor at a Quaker farm camp wasn't new. But it was a new place with new people, and so I was nervous. I got there early with all the other staff to do our wilderness outdoor uh, CPR training. It was led by a bunch of Canadian hotties. Like every time this like tall blonde guy said against, I was like, oh, come on. Anyway, we staged horrible accidents and practiced rescuing each other. We practiced protocols and bound each other to backboards. The valley where we were were gorgeous, and it felt like the new part of my life. And in a lot of ways, it was. One afternoon, out in the field in front of the farmhouse, we were working on our rescue carries, you know, taking turns pretending to be unconscious. And our boss, who was a guy I ended up loving so much, He said later how much he appreciated us taking it seriously. You know, we, we did. Um, we would act even when the person was trying to suppress a grin, like they had really faced an accident, because at some point they might have. Even so, we took it seriously, but there was one afternoon, one hot afternoon, when we were practicing rescuing someone, and we were leaning over their prone body, and I made eye contact with the guy standing opposite me across this body, and we both laughed his blue eyes grabbing mine, and it was on. Andy and I were inseparable. After meals, we'd sit on the front porch, one of us practically in the lap of the other one. In the morning, I would go to his cabin and wake him up for barn chores. Why can't the animals feed themselves, he'd moan. I'd jump onto his bed while he he cackled. Were you two friends before this? People would ask. Did you come here together? You just seem so close. This is all on camp time, you know. So this was like three or four days into our knowing each other, into the beginning of the next part of our lives. And it did feel like it had been forever. So finally, in a rare moment when we weren't together, someone asked, are you a couple? And I said, no, Andy's gay. I'm not going to sit in the lap of some straight guy I just met. One night, which was still before the campers arrived, Andy and I were brushing our teeth together at an outdoor spigot. It was dark already, and we were just letting our eyes adjust. We didn't turn on our flashlights. There was just enough light to see each other's faces, but not to make proper eye contact. Andy, in between brushing his teeth, was telling me something about his non-camp life and some ex, some old sweetie he had, and that's the word he kept using, my sweetie, my ex-sweetie. And then in the dark, Abruptly, his sweetie had a name, and it was Becky. Maybe Andy's bi, I thought? What? Andy asked. I have no poker face, even in near darkness. Nothing, I said. I mean, like I said, I I was 25, and as soon as I left my parents' house, I lived always, almost exclusively, with queer people. They were my housemates and colleagues and my community, my friends. They were, they are my people in a way that I can't even exactly articulate the how or why of, but it had already happened. So I was not flustered at the spigot or even really uncomfortable, not even when I said, I didn't know you dated women. Do you date only women? Very smooth, you know, very respectful. Yes, he said. Why? Did you think I was gay? And I only started to feel flustered when I said, yeah, but I, 
I don't know, I guess I was wrong. I'm, so, I'm sorry I assumed. Do I seem gay, he asked. And like, given what had just happened, the answer was yes. But also, he, he had been talking all the time about going to something called the Rainbow Gatherings, which I thought must be something like the Radical Fairies, but it turns out it's more like a fish concert. Anyway, I'd been wrong, and I apologized, and, and we moved on, you know. I thought, hey, can I talk to you, Andy asked. Are you going to bed? No, I can talk. So because it was camp, we headed down to the waterfront and out onto the dock, and Andy got so quiet walking behind me, and the air got so thick, and I was uncomfortable, and I I made a bad joke. You're not going to push me into the water, are you? He didn't say anything. On the dock, which is the floating kind, you know, it moved when we stepped onto it, and he laughed kind of wildly, and, and he put his hands on his knees, and he bent over, and he took these deep breaths. I was ready. I mean, like I said, I'd been a camp counselor before. I said, Andy, you don't have to tell me anything, but if you want to, there's nothing you can tell me that'll change the way I feel about you. I mean, I already love you. More deep breaths, more laughing, more preparation. Okay, he said, here's the thing. Uh, I am gay. I'm gay. I'm, I'm 23 and I've never told anybody. I've never kissed a guy. I've, ne- I've never done anything. Years after that summer at a reunion up at camp one October, Andy asked me to tell the story of his coming out to a group of people. He wanted to know my version, like sitting in front of this fireplace. He'd never heard it from my perspective. And I confess that I had told it like more than a couple of times to other friends, and he died laughing at the part where he asked whether he seemed gay, and he laughed at the part about, your sweetie's name is Becky, and even my bad joke about him pushing me in the water. Andy's coming out story, it's his own, obviously. That night on the dock was just part one of chapter one, not even part one. He wanted to and did later come out to his family. Later, he also wanted to and did have a love affair with some beach bum he met surfing in Hawaii. He later wanted to come back and work at camp again, and he was thrilled to be chosen to choreograph the big 4th of July talent show number to Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again. He's a farmer now at this really gorgeous spot in Spain, and his blue eyes get a lot of likes on Instagram. I was there for just one little piece of Andy's story the beginning of the next part of his life, and he shared it with me, and I hold my little piece of it with so much love. Moses was a grown man when he got to Midian. Moses had already lived several varied chapters of a life. He'd been a persecuted, enslaved minority. He'd been a miracle baby. He'd been a prince in the house of Pharaoh. He'd been a murderer on the lamb. And that last piece, that's how he came to be out in the middle of nowhere in the first place. He was enraged by an Egyptian, one of his fellow citizens, enraged by seeing that Egyptian beat a Hebrew person, one of his kinsfolks. He killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And when it turned out he'd been seen, he fled to Midian. And there, like so many guys in the Hebrew scriptures, he met his wife at a well. So that's his life now. That's the next part of his life, living in Midian, watching his father's live, father-in-law's livestock, herding them around in and beyond the wilderness. And that's where he is when he comes to Mount Horeb and something catches his eye. A bush on fire but not consumed. 
And in this blazing moment, suddenly Moses and God are together. Not quite making eye contact, you know, but God has something to tell Moses. Something about who God is and what God wants to do. It's a plan, a plan for liberation. And God's going to give Moses just a piece of that story. That's the next chapter for Moses. It's the next chapter for God and for the people of God. But in that moment, in that new beginning, when God comes close to Moses and is ready to kick this thing off, when it was on, in the moment when Moses says, so okay, who should I say sent me? God says only, you tell them I am who I am. There are, as you know, lots of places in the Christian tradition where the revelation of God God's introduction to humanity goes something like this. Once, a long time ago, God showed us who he was once and for all, the end. Everything else that happened or happens takes place after that, and God has been the same static being with male pronouns ever since. God showed who God was in ancient stories, and then people wrote them down in what became the Bible, and that's who God is, and that's all we need to know about God, and there's only one real way to understand who God is, and once you know that, you're good. But going back at least as far as Moses and the burning bush, which was a long time ago, at least as far back as Moses, when we actually listen to God, or even just to the words that others wrote down, having believed that they heard God, when we listen to the words of God, what we hear is a refusal to be boxed in, a refusal to take a shape that we can grasp, a refusal to be intelligible on our terms. And it's true even within the Bible itself. There are authors and threads and communities and received traditions to whom God revealed God's self in different ways at different times. There are different understandings of where God is. In one tradition, God is located in this spot, Moses, at this burning bush. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground right here. In that priestly tradition, God exists at a particular place, seen as fire or cloud, then at the tabernacle, and then in the temple. In another tradition, the holiness tradition, God is everywhere, among and all around us, within us, not teaching us law, but writing it on our hearts. At another moment, God shows up in a body and walks around touching people who weren't supposed to be touched, hanging out with sex workers, being friends with guys who weren't going anywhere fast, hanging around with women who owned their own homes and bankrolled the the work of God. That's in the book of Luke. At Pentecost, there was a small group of Christ followers who thought they'd finally gotten it right. And I actually love that about Pentecost, that the disciples who spend all of the Gospels being like, what, what? Like, days after the resurrection, they're like, yeah, now we understand it. We've really got it right. And Peter in in particular is like, well, that all, that happened just like it was supposed to. Now we have a clear path forward. Anyway, Peter. So they thought they'd finally gotten the message from God as they received it from Jesus. And then, like two seconds later, the Holy Spirit blows the roof and walls off the place where they were staying and off of their understanding of what was next and how God was going to get the word out. And each time, at the bush, in the tabernacle, on our hearts, each time, it feels like God says, No, you don't know me. No, that's not quite it. Mm, Your words fall short. That's not my name. Mm, Your festivals and holidays fall short. I prefer justice rolling down like waters. Mm, Your motivations fall short. I say to you, if you hate someone, it's like you killed them. You don't know me. 
God says. God refuses to let us think we can wrap our minds around who God is. I'm different than you, God insists. I'm something else again. A couple of winters ago, a friend was teaching a course at uh, Chicago University, and both the professor and the, un- the university were very progressive. My friend is very intelligent, super attuned to issues of race and gender and class, and so she thought it was an obvious move at the beginning of the class to let's go around and introduce ourselves, give us your names, and, and please let us know what pronouns you use. Regular, progressive, a way to start a meeting. My friend, the professor, didn't make assumptions. So the class went around the room, each person saying, I'm Rebecca, my pronouns are she, her, hers, you know, going around the room, regular, until they got about halfway around and one of the students shared their name and then said, I prefer not to disclose my pronouns. My friend, taken aback, said, okay, should we, um, okay, okay, thank you. Um, And she glanced at the other professor in the room who seemed a little bit dumbfounded. And when my friend told me this over a glass of wine in my kitchen, she did not maintain a poker face. And neither did I. What? I said. Literally, you prefer not to disclose? But I mean, do you have any guesses about your pronouns? Any way you're leaning? That's ridiculous. And my friend was on board. I know, she said. I believe she called the student terminally unique. And we howled with laughter. I still struggle with it. I'm just old enough or whatever enough that it, I don't know, feels some kind of way. But then I started to think about my indignation in light of God's refusal to give Moses God's name or God's pronouns. I started to think about how God refuses to take or keep a shape that we can get our heads around. God's insistence that their ways are not our ways. God's terminal uniqueness that claims my spirit is everywhere. I can't be contained with words. You can't put me in a box. You want to know my name? I am who I am. It's easier for people to act like they've got God figured out, to act like God came out once and revealed God's self to humankind, and now it's now the end. It was really easy for me to receive Andy's coming out. That's a shape I recognize, a thing I get, to whatever extent I do, you know. I can hold his story with care and affection, and it's easy for me not, I'm sure, that I do it perfectly. But the thing that's hard for me and for lots of people, apparently, in lots of ways, is to enter into any relationship, including one with God, without assuming that we already know everything, without demanding that the other take a form we can recognize and get our minds around. The thing that's hard for lots of people entering into any relationship is that other people assume they already know everything. It's hard. It can even be dangerous. But our God keeps coming close, close enough almost to make eye contact close enough to bring us in on God's big plans, close enough to conspire with us, and God keeps revealing more about who God is to us, even though we keep demanding something else. God keeps coming close, even though all that we're afraid will happen to us when we're vulnerable has already happened and keeps happening to God. God has been misgendered. God has been misunderstood. God has been misused. God remains unknown and unrecognized even when God's like, hello, I'm right here. 
God does this even though we insist, like Peter and so many others, that now we understand, now we've got God on lockdown. Even though God has to come out again and again to us. It feels to me like God is willing to do it, to keep coming out again and again for some of the same reasons that drive us to do the dangerous, vulnerable work of being in relationship with anybody. Because God wants to be known. Because the heart of God is a generative, creative urge toward life and thriving. Because God can't keep from coming out any more than, any more than we can. Because it's just who God is to say again and again, this is me. You don't know me, you, you can't really, but I want to be known. I want to conspire with you. I want you to hold part of my story. I want you to tell it now, as vulnerably and honestly as you can, with all of who you are. <laughs>